love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this glimpse of heaven this morning. Thank you for the joy that wells up in our hearts as we worship you. Thank you for the intimacy, the beauty of your presence. Thank you that our burdens really do fall from our shoulders in your beautiful presence. We so love you, really love you, Jesus. We relish, we cherish your love for us. Oh, we don't want to leave your presence, Lord. We want you to continue with us right now as we open the Bible, as we read your word, your truth. Let it shape our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's so wonderful to know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, there will be an opportunity towards the end of our meeting for you to come to know him, respond to him. We're going to turn to uh, the Bible now. It's my privilege this morning to continue the series that we've started in Genesis chapters 1 to 11. And this morning is chapter 3, the fall or death in paradise. (laughs) Death in paradise. Yes, I know, I know, I've borrowed my title from Friday Night TV. And I just have to lay my cards on the table right now that this is not a favorite television program of mine. This is one of the areas of our marriage where we don't see eye to eye, Liz and I. She loves, she loves Death in Paradise. It's just too cheesy for me. Um, and I, I do feel a referendum coming on about this. I seem to remember that uh, some time back I had a referendum about Magnolia or Natural Calico. And I believe I, I lost that referendum. So I thought I'd just have a little quick vote, really, on this Death in Paradise TV program. Who likes that program? Okay, two hands going up there. That's not fair. Okay, now, I'm, I'm, I'm holding my breath here. Who, who thinks it's too cheesy by far? Thank you. Thank you. Tom's put two hands up. Well, that is an improvement on, on, on Magnolia. I still can't work out, I still can't work out why Father Dougal is in paradise doing all that detective work. I much preferred him in Father Ted myself. But um, I have to admit, I do have to admit that the name describes what's going on in Genesis 3. And that's why I've chosen the title, uh, not to get a few cheap laughs, Death in Paradise. The location in Genesis 3 is a garden paradise, but the story is a tragedy, not a comedy. And what happens introduces death to the the human race. We'd read in in chapter 2, and Mark did our uh, message last week, in chapter 2 about how God puts the first man and the first woman in in a garden. Verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
So there was that death in paradise connected to this particular tree. And we're going to take up the story now in Genesis 3. And I'm going to read the whole chapter, even though we won't have time to examine every verse. I'll, I'll have to stop at a certain point. So, Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And to Adam he said, because, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree. Now, we, I thought we, we've leapt on a bit too far. Verse 10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you and to Adam he said because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you you shall not eat of it cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Once Adam and Eve had fallen, it was important that they didn't eat from the tree of life and have immortality as fallen creatures. Powerful passage of scripture. Frank, Francis Schaeffer was a brilliant uh, biblical theologian, philosopher, author, pastor. And he once remarked that if he had an hour on an aeroplane with uh, sitting beside somebody and that person was open to hearing the gospel, Schaeffer said he would spend 55 minutes in Genesis chapters 1 to 3 and 5 minutes on Jesus, the cross, the resurrection. Now, you might think, wow, that, that's a little bit strange. But Schaefer said, this is because so few people understand the basics of a biblical worldview. And it's essential background for understanding the good news of Jesus. If you don't understand these chapters, you won't understand the good news of the gospel. You see, your worldview is simply how you make sense of the world. We have a biblical worldview as Christians. It's a set of beliefs that hang together that give us the big picture. And everybody's got a worldview. Some people don't realize it, but they have a worldview as well. And many people have a very different worldview from yourself. Many people, they've absorbed their worldview from their culture, from their parents, maybe from the media, the bombardment every day of the media. And that shapes the way they think. That's the way they understand the world around them. Now, in launching this uh, Bible teaching series, the two marks, if I may call them that, have set the trajectory. Our worldview begins with God. Chapter 1 of Genesis, the big emphasis is on God. God himself is the big big theme of chapter 1. And his goodness is expressed in, in creation, culminating in the creation of a man and a woman in his own image. And Genesis 2 moves from the long shot of Genesis 1 to the close-up of that first man and that first woman in a garden paradise where they're in a right relationship with God, a right relationship with creation, and a right relationship with one another. There's a great definition of paradise. And so today we come to chapter 3, and many translations of the Bible, you may have a look at yours and see that the chapter often is called, given the title of the fall. Now that's, that word you won't find in the text, but it's a word that's used to assert that something disastrous happened at the very beginning, which has affected the whole of the, of the human race and the whole of human history. Uh, and this chapter, chapter 3, addresses one of the really big worldview questions. And that worldview question is, what's gone wrong with the world? It's very interesting to ask people outside, what do you, what's your answer to this one? What's gone wrong with the world? And um, 
Why is there so much alienation? Why is there so much strife between human beings? Where do guilt and shame and fear, where do they come from? Why do so many people reject God or feel alienated from God? These are, these are big questions. They're worldview questions. So what are we to make of this story? Because Genesis 3 gives us the answer to these questions. Now, the debate about this particular story usually revolves around what kind of literature this is. It's clearly ancient literature. It hasn't been written in the 20th century, nor was it written by Jane Austen. This is ancient literature. Um, so the question is, what kind of literature is it? And so the debate goes on. Is, there, is this a fable? Is this the Old Testament equivalent of Narnia? With a wonderful garden, a talking serpent, and magic fruit trees. Is that what it is? Or is it a legend? Is it a Hebrew story with some vague historical basis, like our Robin Hood stories? Or is it a myth? Is it an event which may or may not have happened, but which contains timeless truth? Is it simply a, a powerful story with a profound theological message? Or could it be that it's literal, straightforward history? It's an account of an event which literally happened. So Bible teacher David Pawson, we've gone... That's it. Bible Pawson, uh, David Pawson says this. This is a real event in real history. We're given both the place and the time of it. At the dawn of human history, a gigantic moral catastrophe took place. Another respected Bible scholar, who again is, uh, is one we would uh, respect for his, his opening up of scripture, is Jim Packer. And he thinks that what we have here is what he calls parabolic history. So he says that the story is recounting, recording a historical fact. This is a, a fact that happened. There was a, a gigantic fall. But he says, unlike the narrative one might hear from the witness stand in a courtroom, this is a story told pictorially and symbolically and interpreted as it's told. This way of communicating an idea may seem strange to us, but in the days of Moses, it would have been understood well enough. Well, where am I coming from this morning as I, as I get into the text here? I believe that this is a record of an actual event. But the reality is this is an ancient document. I don't think I'm sure, I'm not sure anybody can be sure of the real literary genre that we have here. I'm content to look at this passage and realize it records a catastrophic rebellion that took place right at the beginning of human history with two real persons. There was a death in paradise. So I'm going to confine myself to verses 1 to 9 before looking at how this story makes sense of the world uh, as it is. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now with the serpent's first utterance, it becomes apparent that we've got an enemy of God speaking here. Yes? Behind this creature, we are introduced to a malignant power in the universe. Not one that's equal to God, 
but nevertheless significant. We could almost say the serpent has entered into a serpent. And he works to ruin everything associated with God. He doesn't like the fact that creation is good. He doesn't like the fact that creation is going to actually speak of the glory of God. And so he wants to degrade, to destroy creation itself to get at God. In other words, there'd been a fall in heaven before there was ever a fall in earth. And notice how he targets Eve. And notice the question he asks. Did God say? I was interested that Chris began our meeting this morning by opening up the Bible and saying, this is truth, this is what God says, believe what God says. Because the serpent does the opposite. The serpent says, can you really trust what God says? I'll give you a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was part of the confessing church in Germany during the Second World War. He was executed on the direct orders of Hitler shortly before the end of the war. And he said this in his book about Genesis 1 to 3, looking at this, uh, this question, did God say? He said, this is the question that appears innocuous, but through it evil wins power in us. Through it we become disobedient to God. The serpent's question immediately proved to be the satanic question par excellence. The question that robs God of his honour and aims to divert men from the word of God. And notice how the serpent is drawing Eve into conversation. She should turn away. You don't talk to serpents, do you? And instead we read, the woman said to the serpent... We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Some scholars think she's just exaggerating there about not even touching it, but I think actually she's grasped the understanding of what it really means. It's God saying, no, don't even go near it. You mustn't, you mustn't even go near it. Stay, stay well clear of this. Don't touch it. This is the tree of knowledge of good and evil that uh, was introduced in chapter 2 and verse 9. Does this mean God's created something evil? Of course it doesn't. Everything that God made was good. This tree is simply to give Adam and Eve a way to affirm their, disobedience, their obedience and their trust in God every day. They're free, they're moral beings. They're experiencing a life perfectly in tune with God. By obeying God, they're saying, we are so happy to have you as the Lord of our lives. We're so delighted with everything you've given us. We love walking with you in the garden. We love this setting you've given us, the work you've given us, the destiny that you've set before us. But by taking the fruit of that tree, they would be disagreeing, God. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Now the serpent's abandoning all subtlety uh, here. First of all, he contradicts what God has said, and he does so very forcibly, the text really says, no, it's not true. 
Second, he implies that God's jealous. You know, God's afraid of rivals. Third, he suggests there's some magical quality to the, tr to the tree. In fact, the issue is nothing to do with magic. It's to do with obedience or disobedience. And fourth, the serpent tells a half-truth. Yes, their eyes would be opened, but he doesn't explain how terrible their condition would be as a result of their eyes being opened. They would then experience everything from the standpoint of rebels. That's what they would experience. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here we have the essence of what the Bible calls sin. Abandon trust in God. Strike out on your own. Make your own evaluation about what's good and what's not good. Decide for yourself whether God's right or not. Interpret life apart from God. That's the essence of sin. That's what's going on here in the garden. That's what Genesis 3 is telling us. Charles Colson was a great Christian apologist after having had a disastrous start as a politician, working for Reagan, getting involved in the Watergate affair, serving a prison sentence, he was born again. Wrote a book called Born Again. That's his autobiography. And he became one of the chief apologists for Christianity by radio in the United States until he, he died a few years ago. And this is what he wrote. Adam and Eve's sin was not eating a piece of fruit. Their sin was coveting godlike power, craving something that was not rightfully theirs. They rejected their nature as created, limited, finite beings, and they tried to be what they could never be, divine. They wanted to be their own God. A few years ago, I remember seeing a photograph of David Beckham. He was wearing a leather jacket uh, with what he called his favourite poem written on the back of the jacket. And this is what it said. This is the poem. Look into the palm of my right hand. What do you see? Nothing? I see my fate. Look into the palm of my left hand. What do you see? Nothing? I see my destiny. Look into both of my hands. What do you see? Nothing? I see my future. For my future is in my hands, and my hands hold my future. Be your own God. <coughs> Bless him. I don't suppose David Beckham had a clue of how he was actually expounding Genesis 3. This is as clear an exposition as you'll ever get of what was going on with the temptation of the serpent in, of Adam and Eve. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Temptation changes the way Eve looks at the tree. In the garden, all the trees are a delight. But suddenly, this one is especially desirable. Suddenly, this one is especially beautiful. Do you recognize this? When temptation finds an area of weakness, that's how it appears to you. Suddenly, to, de be, to be deprived of this fruit, to be deprived of this desire, to be deprived of this 
little disobedience is just too much to ask. It's so, so to be desired. Do you recognize that? She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Adam is close by. Adam is right there by her side. He's not intervened. And this is a key moment in the story in Genesis 3. Genesis presents marriage as a union of equals, but the man is responsible before God to take care of his wife. That's the situation with Adam and Eve. Husbands are accountable to God. And Adam will find that out in a few moments in the chapter. But here, he's passive. Passivity is a dangerous position for any man. Whether you're single or married, to be passive is very dangerous for a man. And to be a husband and be passive, well, we can see what happens in this chapter when that is the case. He's gone along with the whole thing. He's not said a word. And now Eve plucks the fruit and hands it to Adam and he sinks his teeth into it. <laughs> then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the dream of enlightenment. It's a grotesque anticlimax. This dream of your eyes being opened and knowing good and evil. What a wonderful promise and what a grotesque result. Instead of something new, some wonderful knowledge, they begin to look at everything from a lower position. What had been pure is now shameful. Corruption has entered their hearts. Corruption's entered their minds. The Bible calls this corruption sin. It's a malignant disease of the soul that affects everything. And now they experience something for the first time, all right. They experience guilt, shame, and fear. Thank you, serpent, for opening our eyes. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Instead of delight, instead of delight at the usual approach of God, Adam and Eve experienced dread. And that's what sin's done. They want to run. Their instinct is to hide, but you can't hide from God. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? What's behind that question? Isn't a game of hide and seek, is it, in the garden? It's not, God's in, it's not that God's in the dark about where Adam and Eve are or what's happened. God's calling them to face up. Adam, first of all, Adam, first of all, is held responsible for the choice that's been made. And yet, grace is behind the question. God's not abandoning them. Did you get that? Do you realize that? The question, where are you? It's an uncomfortable question, but it's better than no voice at all. <coughs> Imagine if Genesis 3 had ended in silence. God turns his back and walks away. That would be a Bible. We'd have a very thin book, folks. 
We'd have three chapters and that would be the end of it. If God hadn't asked that question, if God's voice hadn't been heard, if God had walked away. And that, my friends, is the secular humanistic worldview. We exist on this little planet, hurtling through space, and there's no voice. There's no voice calling to us. There's no God. That's what we're told. But this passage tells us that God's still there. The relationship of trust has been broken. Separation has taken place. But God has not abandoned the human race. Now, the theology behind this story, I have to leave the text at this point. There's just not time. I'd love to go through the whole text, but there's not time. The theology behind this story is absolutely crucial for a biblical worldview. I'm going to mention a few things before I close. The first is that this fall that we just described, that we've read about in Genesis 3, confirms that life on earth is not as God intended. Yes, planet Earth is beautiful, it's full of wonder, but nature is also red in tooth and claw, and those who experience tsunamis and earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and all the rest of it will tell you that it's not perfect. And what about men and women? What about wars? What about atrocities? What about cruelty, abuse, selfishness? You know, faced with the problem of evil, an 18th century German philosopher called Leibniz concluded that this is the best of all possible worlds. There must be a reason, he said, why God has made the world the way it is, with all these kind of things in it. But the Bible contradicts that. The Bible says the world is not as God intended. We are not as people, how God intended us to be. This is not the best that men and women can be. Adam and Eve were made in God's image to reflect his glory. They were going to be God's regents, God's royalty on planet Earth. Their offspring was going to multiply and fill the Earth with other reflections of the glory of God. That was the destiny for Adam and Eve. My dear friend, this is a fallen world. We are fallen people on this planet. C.S. Lewis put it brilliantly. He said that a new kind of man, a new species, had sinned itself into existence. We're not really, we're not any longer fully human. That's the, that's the message of the Bible. And yet the good news is that Jesus came as the perfect human being. The perfect man, the only one who could claim to be fully, truly human as well as fully God. In fact, when Pilate hauled him up, tortured him, stood him before the people and said, Echo homo, behold the man, his words were prophetic. He didn't realize it, but he was basically saying, look, he is the only perfect human being, Jesus. And this Jesus came into this fallen world to rescue fallen men and women. He'd come bringing the kingdom of God. And he's saying, this is what God's rule looks like, folks. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This is what God's rule is like. This is what planet Earth will look like. 
as more and more of God's grace and goodness and power is released afresh. And that's what Jesus came to bring. So the fall tells us that this world is not as God intended. Secondly, the fall gives us God's diagnosis of the human condition. You know, most people are still optimists about human nature. It's extraordinary after the 20th century with all that went on in the 20th century and that still goes on, how people can still be optimistic about human nature, that people are basically good. But the fall declares that we are sons and daughters of Adam. We have a disease of the soul that's inherited. The Bible says the problem lies deep in the human heart. I was interested in the words of uh, Prince Charles this week in the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, acknowledging the wickedness of the human heart. Well done. We were created by a loving, purposeful God, but we are now fallen men and women. We're slaves to the downward pull of sin. That's what the Bible says. Theologian Elaine Storkey put it brilliantly. This is what she said. She wrote this. Sin is at its heart an alienation from God. But it has much wider consequences. It distorts, deludes, destroys, enslaves, betrays, confuses. It is addictive. Even taking away our freedom of choice, it is deceptive. Presenting lies as the truth, it is self-centered, ruining relationship as it feeds the insatiable demands of the ego. That sounds bad news to me. Sin sounds bad news. When we choose to sin, we are choosing something pretty bad. But the good news is, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to rescue us from sin's mastery. He's come to deliver us from the dominion of darkness, to transfer us to his own kingdom, a kingdom where God's love shines upon us. That's good news, folks. He's come to set prisoners free. We are chained by sin until Jesus sets us free, and there's no other solution. Which brings me to the third thing. The fall validates our feelings of guilt and shame. You know, secular humanism dismisses guilt and shame as some kind of primitive legacy. But biblical Christianity regards guilt and shame as essential. This is not something to be resisted or to minimize because it points to our need for atonement. Years ago, I read Ernest Hemingway's great novel about the Spanish Civil War, um, For Whom the Bell Tolls. And one of his characters in the, in the novel is Anselmo, uh, who's thinking about the killing that's been going on. Now, Anselmo is a good guy in the novel. He's got a conscience. He's formerly a Roman Catholic. He's abandoned religion now because the church has sided with the fascists in the Spanish Civil War. And uh, this is what Anselmo says towards the end of the book. I think this, that after the war, there'll have to be some great penance done for the killing. If we no longer have religion after the war, then I think there must be some form of civic penance organized that all may be cleansed from the killing or else we will never have a true and human basis for living. We must do something very strong to atone for it. That's, that's, a, that's a powerful passage about the need for atonement, the need so that you've got a, 
a truly human basis for living. But the Bible says, I'm very sorry, but there is nothing you can do to atone for it. I'm sorry, there isn't. People try, they try all sorts of stuff, but there's no other, there's no answer to guilt and shame that we have at our disposal. Nothing at all. That's bad news, but there's good news. The gospel says God himself has done what we cannot do. God himself came in the perfect person of Jesus and died in our place, taking the judgment we deserve. And only this can deal with the guilt. Why? Why this way? Well, because sin is primarily against God. God, therefore, has the right to lay down how atonement is made. And amazingly, he chose, not that we all have to climb Mount Everest, not that we all have to be extremely religious, not that we all have to lash ourselves like monks every day, but God chose the cross. This is amazing, folks. He chose the cross. He chose to come himself in the person of Jesus Christ and die on a cross to make atonement for us. To take the punishment that we deserved. That's good news. And finally, the fall reminds us that we were made to know God. We were made for a personal and intimate relationship with God. Adam and Eve enjoyed God's presence. We're told in Genesis that they walked and talked with him. But sin severed that relationship. And later, in the Old Testament, God arranges way of, ways of approach, offering special days, holy places. But they're all very poor substitutes for knowing God personally. They were always intended as a stopgap. They were always a shadow of something more substantial. And so when celebrity atheists rail against religion, we agree with them. Religion's not the answer. Jesus didn't, doesn't invite us to be religious. He didn't come to start a new religion. He came to restore a relationship. He came to restore our relationship with God. We're made to know God. And Jesus has made it possible once more to know him. One of the deepest longings of the human heart is for the ultimate relationship. Many people think marriage is the ultimate relationship, and it is beautiful. Marriage is a wonderful gift of God, but it actually points to an even more ultimate relationship. It points beyond itself. There's a mystery in marriage that points beyond itself to a relationship between Christ and his people. We yearn. We yearn. Everybody yearns for something beyond the reach of ordinary human experience. And the reason is we were created for fellowship with God. That's what he made us for. We can't be fully satisfied until... We have a relationship with God. And St. Augustine put this perfectly, didn't he? Famously, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We're like iron needles drawn to this magnetic pole of God. We've got a homing instinct precisely because there is a home prepared for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus spoke of that place to one of the men dying alongside him on the cross. And guess what he said? 
Today you will be with me in, in paradise. And there's no more death in this paradise. This is a, 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 an avenue to life. It's not the permanent home. The permanent home will be a restored heaven and earth where righteousness dwells. But when we die, we go immediately into the place where Jesus is, paradise, garden, a beautiful place in his presence. That's good news, folks. And that's what we rejoice about when we worship as we've done this morning. And that's why the question is such a key question. I'm going to ask the band to come up now as I, as I just close this. God's question for Adam echoes right through the centuries, right to this morning. Where are you? Where are you? It's a really good question for us as we close this morning. Where are you? It's a question. It's certainly a question this morning. If you are living without God, it really is a big question. If you're trying to live your life without any reference to God, making your own decisions about what's right and wrong, if there's no voice for you that never has been, you're just sailing on planet Earth, revolving around, then the question comes to you forcibly this morning. Where are you? Where are you? We've got an Alpha course coming up. Uh, next week starts. Alpha would be a brilliant, a brilliant setting for you to have your worldview tested, the things you believe, have them tested, and then for you to hear about a biblical worldview and to ask your questions about it, explore it, and see where, where things work through. A lot of people have done that. Actually, it might also be a question for anybody running away or hiding from God. You find that, actually. I, I talk to people who've been running from God for quite a long time. Or hiding from God, or putting off. The thing is about that, that sometimes God's voice is really quite insistent and loud. But for many people, there comes a time when the voice gets a little bit dimmer and dimmer. And it gets more difficult to hear that voice. And it's not that God's moved, it's that you've got thicker into the undergrowth. Where are you? God's asking that question. He really wants to know you. He doesn't want you to hide anymore. And so, again, Alpha's a great setting for you to explore. I was conscious also when that question kind of came up again as I was preparing this. It's a kind of question God might well ask for some of us who used to walk really intimately with God, used to enjoy his presence and hear his voice and enjoy reading scripture and prayer and used to love growing in God, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And somehow, somehow that's kind of stuttered. Somehow there's things have got in the way. Somehow hurts, disappointments maybe. God's saying, where are you? I just loved those times with you. I'd love to pick them up again. I'd love you to spend more time with me again. I wonder if that connects with anybody this morning. But none of us escape this question. God asks this question of all of us. Where are you? Where are you? Where am I in my relationship with God now? Where am I compared to 10 years ago in my relationship with God? Where are you? That's a good question for you to answer this morning. I've been reading recently, read about half a dozen books on spiritual awakenings and revivals. And it's extraordinary how God brings breakthrough when the church 
responds to that question, where are you? And it seeks to be more holy, seeks to get rid of sin in their lives, seeks to be men and women wholehearted for God. And boy, when that happens, things start to explode and people start to ask about who Jesus is and the news spreads and God breaks in in the most amazing way to whole communities and it starts with us facing up to God's question about our lives and our purity and our desire for him where are you Lord we thank you for your word we thank you for Jesus we thank you that Jesus is in the picture as we read Genesis 3. We don't have to pretend that Jesus hasn't come. We don't have to read Genesis 3 without any reference to the kingdom of God. There is good news, and it's stamped over this terrible bad news of Genesis 3. But it helps us, Lord, understand. Helps us understand our own lives in the past and perhaps in the, in the present. And it helps us understand how to share this good news with others. So, Lord, as we continue to worship you now, as we seek you, we want to respond to you. I want to say to you this morning, if there are any here who really do feel an urgency and know us an urgency about them responding because they've put off for too long, please respond this morning. Chris and others have got uh, time that they'll be able to spend time with you and help you. Perhaps also direct you to Alpha. But we'd love you to realize that this morning your life can change let's all stand let's all stand we're going to continue worshiping